Friday. Finance Friday, get free Friday here on Daring Dialogues. We are back in the book, The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and What We Can Do to Fix It. We are looking at the chapter called The Great Unequalizer. And if you're reading along with us, we're on page 110. And we're talking about school and pricing and colleges. So hopefully uh, we will finish this reading today. It's, I don't know, it's quite thorough. So we might get halfway through uh, what we read today if we don't finish the entire thing. I am going to read for about 15 minutes and then I'm going to, 15 to 20 minutes, and then I'm going to open it up for conversation based on what we've read. So far, we've looked at how and why a small percentage of Black Americans have the best outcomes at the top of the higher education pyramid, while a significantly higher percentage experience the worst outcomes at for-profit institutions that are all the way at the bottom. What about HBCUs, which offer some of the reputation and resources of elite institutions while providing a majority Black experience? At HBCUs, Black students don't have to be in the minority, an experience that many say has been critical to their well-being and personal development. Rachel, who longed to get away from being labeled the smart Black girl, had the college experience she'd hoped for at Spelman. There were girls who looked like me who were majoring in political science, she says. Excuse me. I'd never met somebody that looked like me who wanted to do political science. Jalon, the 2018 Morehouse graduate, says he felt simply more at ease at a majority black college. Black students who go to PWIs are often alone. They feel like a number. There's no sense of safe space. Now, I can talk from the experience of being a black student at a PWI, um, but I grew up in the hood and I was always bussed out to PWIs when it came to, um, I think my elementary school was the only school I went to like directly in my neighborhood, but it was a magnet school. So there were lots of kids from variety of ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds that were coming into the hood because my elementary school was a magnet school. That was the only reason they were there and they left on their buses. So they never really interacted with the community. For me, for middle and high school, I was bused out of my community into a PWI slash um, Ashkenazim community at both schools. Um, the majority of the community was surrounded by white and white Jewish uh, students. So for me going to a PWI, it was not all that different from the environment I was in in my schools. So it wasn't like a culture shock. However, um, what Jalan is saying here about students feeling alone or often alone, um, I don't know if it was because I was still in state, if that made a difference with the um, college that I went to. But we did have a pretty strong black student union. So as soon as we came on campus, there were a group of black upperclassmen, uh, collegiate students that did embrace us, you know, and did encourage us 
while we were on the campus, but it definitely was not an all black experience. I did because I was in Florida. I had the benefit of if I wanted <laughs> to sort of be surrounded by an all black experience, even though I was at a PWI, all I had to do was go over to the HBCU that was in my community. Everybody else doesn't, everybody doesn't have that option, right? So like maybe 10, 15 minutes from my campus was Florida A&M University. So I had access to the HBCU, right? Even though I was at a PWI. So I never really felt isolated or alone. Um, I did wind up going to Florida A&M University for a semester, but even before then, because of what I saw happening in the culture there, because all things black are not necessarily all things good. I know that's not politically correct to say, but because of the, some of the things I saw there, I was like, I'm glad I'm not there because I, just knowing myself, I wouldn't have been focused on academics for the most part. So the semester that I did go, I was in my, what was it? junior year or sophomore year, one of those, I think my junior year, I did a semester over there, but I was a lot more mature and able to handle the environment than had I gone as a freshman. Had I gone as a freshman, I don't think I would have been focused at all, at all, <laughs> just being honest. Jalon says, at an HBCU, you're able to have that safe space you're able to grow and be around other black students who come from different walks of life. Interestingly, even in environments that are designed explicitly to uplift and support black college students, graduation rates don't match those at elite institutions. Exactly. Because again, a lot of the people that I know that went to HBCUs actually wound up not finishing or having to transfer to another school because they just were not focused on academics the way that they needed to be. HBCUs, which include both private and public colleges, have overall graduation rates at 38%. However, that statistic doesn't tell the full story. Research shows that when you compare HBCUs and predominantly white institutions with a similar percentage of, how, of low income students, HBCU graduation rates are higher. 38% for HBCUs versus 32% for comparable PWIs. Institutional resource disparity plays a significant role too. Just look at graduation rates and endowment levels. In Atlanta, Emory, predominantly white and ranked most competitive by Barron's Profiles of American Colleges, has a 93% graduation rate for black students. In 2019, its endowment was close to $7 billion. Spelman, considered very competitive, has a 75% graduation rate and an endowment of only $389 million. Morehouse, not ranked by Barron's, has a 54% graduation rate and an endowment of $145 million. Endowments, you'll remember, earn tax-free investment income, providing more funds for a better resource campus. HBUs quite simply do more with less. In addition, HBCUs are top-notch when it comes to economic mobility. Though they enroll a far greater percentage of low-income students than PWIs, more students experience upward mobility through their HBCU. 
Two-thirds of low-income students at HBCUs end up in at least the middle class, and nearly 70% of all HBCU students do the same. At Emory, in contrast, a 2017 report noted that only 13% of their students moved up two or more income quintiles, and only 1.8% moved from the bottom to the top. Both Rachel and Jalon, however, incurred significant debt to attend their respective HBCUs. Rachel graduated with approximately $65,000 in debt and unable to afford the $500 monthly principal payment on her loans, chose to live in public housing after graduating so she could pay off the $160 a month interest. Jalon received a $15,000 annual tuition scholarship, took out loans, and received some financial assistance from his parents who deferred their own loans and ultimately took jobs on opposite sides of the country to maximize their earning while he was in school. It can be frustrating to think about the fact that you have these student loans to pay off and it's going to take the rest of your life to pay them. But just being at Morehouse really changed my life. Both Jalon and Rachel have plans to pay off their debt. He received an undergraduate fellowship that will forgive some of his loans if he enrolls in a PhD program and she plans to continue with stringent budgeting. However, their family circumstances reflect an unfortunate side of Black educational achievement. Blacks attending college are more likely not only to take out student loans, but also to take out larger student loans than white college students. Why? Because debt is the key mechanism of financing a college education for Black students. While college students are far more likely to have their college education paid for by parents or grandparents, a form of what in tax law we call family financial transfers, in a study that tra tracked college-educated households over a 24-year period, researchers found that white heads of household were far more likely to have both received money from college for college from their own parents and to have provided college funding to their children. 60% of white heads of households reported that their parent paid for college, and 64% of white households reported that they had helped pay for their children's education, contributing on average close to $73,000. By contrast, only 37% of black heads of households reported that their parent had helped pay for college, and 34% reported that they had helped pay for their children's education. These parents also contributed less, just over 16,000 on average. As a result, black graduates end up owing more than their white peers, a disparity that only increases over time. Surprisingly, the trend holds even for black students from wealthy households, whose parents are unable to protect their children from debt the way parents of their white peers do. Research shows that even at the top end of the wealth spectrum, Black students have higher student loans than their white peers, an average of $4,643 versus $3,835. And Black parents are more likely to take greater loans to assist them. <clears throat> Dr. Feneba Addo, Lorna Jorgensen, and Went Associate Professor in Money, Relationships and Equality at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, has found that students with wealthier parents have less debt in general, but that changes when the data is disaggregated by race. As Black parental wealth increases, we do not see Black student loan debt increasing, decreasing. 
at the higher wealth end, student loan debt is higher for blacks than whites. Why aren't wealthy black families contributing more? A common explanation for racial disparities in education from the elementary to the college level targets black parents as the culprits. This isn't just a right wing talking point either. The two 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg and former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, explained achievement gaps in their cities by saying that black families lack the experience to understand the value of an education. But the idea that black families simply don't see the value of education, that they contribute less to college tuition because they don't see education as a priority, and my parents or Jalons are simply outliers for being so dedicated to their children's education is entirely incorrect. In fact, the research reveals the opposite. A recent Pew Research survey showed that more than half of a group of Black and Latinx parents surveyed said getting a college degree for their children was extremely important. Among white parents, only 34% of them said the same. Controlling for socioeconomic factors such as income, education level, house type, Black families are also more likely to make what researchers call significant non-monetary investments in their children's future education. These can include anything from engaging their children in conversations about schoolwork at an early age to exposing them to cultural resources like museums. My mother often took me and my sister to New York's many museums <clears throat> and also made the major non-monetary investment of pulling us out of the elementary school where we were targeted by racist teachers and using my grandmother's address to enroll us in a better one. At that new elementary school, I met the teacher who selected me to sit for the entrance exam for one of the city's best public high schools, which prepared me for anything the selective college I attended had in store for me. My parents' non-monetary investments changed my life. If you're asking where my father was in all this, his smartest non-monetary investment was to let my mother handle the decisions about our education. Those are clear indications that Black parents are indeed at least as committed to the education of their children as our white parents, if not more so. The Pew study also showed the importance of parental financial support in eliminating the college graduation gap. Without financial support, only 11.2% of Black children complete college, compared with 25% of white children. However, with financial support, the percentages of white and blacks who complete college are comparable, 68% white and 66% of black students. So why then is college debt so much more prevalent among all black families? I believe that loan deferral programs designed to lighten the load for those with student loans are actually making things worse for them in the long run. In theory, deferral programs make it easier for students with debt to pursue advanced degrees. In practice, however, as interest starts to accumulate, borrowers end up with a balance higher than the original principal. Consider how black college graduates are more likely to enroll in graduate school compared to their white peers and more likely to have graduate school debt. A graduate degree should position them for better earnings that will reduce their student loan debt. However, if they have out student, outstanding student loans from their undergraduate degrees 
and need to defer those payments while in graduate school, both the outstanding loans plus any unpaid interest will accumulate, increasing the principal balance over time. As a result, the interest on their undergraduate debt is deferred and graduate school debt adds even more. Income-based repayment, which black college graduates use twice as much as their white counterparts, also plays a role. Income-based repayment reduces the amount borrowers are legally obligated to pay based on their income. But as with graduate school deferrals, the unpaid balance still accumulates interest and increases the overall outstanding debt. Both of these programs were created with the best of intentions, but both are leading to ever-increasing Black student debt. One of the ways to solve this would be to not allow the interest to accrue while the loan is in deferment, but that would be too simple to figure out. <laughs> Jalon and his mother, Veronica, are using both of these plans to address their loan debt. He is deferring his loans while he pursues the graduate degree. She uses income-based repayment for hers. Veronica is a former special education teacher now working with the Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Virginia. She has a bachelor's degree in organizational study and a master's in special education. She deferred her loans to help Jalon pay for his education at Morehouse with interest. She estimates that she now owes $270,000, which she's paying off using income-based repayment at a monthly rate of $170 a month. Even so, she says she'd do it again. She was the first in her family to attend college and the value of the degree is worth the step, steep price she's paying. Education is not a wealthy line of work, she says. You get a lot of your reward from reaching students and changing their lives. It was a passion of mine and that's why I pursued it. The federal government does have some provisions for loan forgiveness that might apply to someone like Veronica. If she'd worked as a special education teacher in a public school for 10 years, she might qualify for public service loan forgiveness, which would discharge her remaining loan balance tax-free. At least that's the idea. Now, I can tell you that does not apply to everybody. Why? Because I've been teaching for 22 years and I did not qualify for the public service loan forgiveness. Go figure. At least... Again, that's the idea. In practice, 99% of applications for this were rejected in the program's first year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Which spanned from May 2018 to May 2019. This year, that number has crept down slightly to 97% being rejected. Assuming Veronica doesn't qualify, she may be able to get the balance of her loan forgiven after 20 or 25 years of on-time payments under her income-based plan. But since the amount of the forgiven debt will be treated as income, she'll be hit with a potentially massive tax bill. Taking into account Veronica's periods of deferral and the tax consequences of forgiveness, there's a good chance she'll probably be paying her loans forever. The failure of deferral and income-based repayment programs we see is significant, but it doesn't address why black students borrow so much in the first place. That answer lies in what we learned in the last chapter. Higher income black parents have less home equity and other assets than their white peers. Remember how the white families in the 24 year study both received money from their parents and gave it to their children more frequently 
and in larger amounts in Black families. Home equity in various opportunities it provides for wealth building is less available to Black families. That's true both historically, which accounts for the lack of funds received from parents, and in the present day, which explains the lack of funds provided for children. Some of these heads of households were in college in the mid to late 70s, meaning when they were growing up, housing discrimination was not only common, but legal. Today, as we saw in the last chapter, black and white Americans still buy homes in different neighborhoods and receive unequal returns. And consistent growth in home equity still comes from living in a predominantly white neighborhood. Another part of the explanation for increased borrowing by black students is that even wealthy black parents have fewer liquid financial assets like stocks that can be sold to pay for college. Both of these differences make it harder for black parents, even the small percentage of them that have significant wealth to protect their children from graduating with student debt. This is where the tax policy comes into play again, rewarding white choices and punishing black ones at both individual and institutional levels. What Robert Smith did for those Morehouse men forgiving and paying off their loans, however great, cannot fix the systemic nature of the problem. With statistically less family wealth, Black Americans are more likely to attend colleges whose smaller endowments inhibit them from awarding scholarships at the same level as elite, most predominantly white institutions. This leads Black students to take on more debt to finance their education. White students, in contrast, are more likely to both attend universities that already have these endowments and have family members who contribute to their educations. Both of these paths have tax policies associated with them. And once again, those policies make things better for white Americans and worse for black Americans. So we will stop there. And hopefully in our next reading, we will finish up this chapter called The Great Un. Equalizer. I think we will do that next time. All right. Quite a lot to think about. So as you are a parent, <clears throat> getting your child ready for the great college that they are going to be attending, if they're choosing to go that route, you've got a lot of things to think about. Number one, do you, are you a homeowner? Number two, what kind of equity do you have in your home, if any, that can be leveraged to help fund your child's education? Number three, have you participated in any of the um, college programs, right, where people start out paying for their children's tuition through that program, but it usually has to be in state? So they can't go out of state if they plan on using the money that you have been paying into. You got to think about what college is your child applying for and what's the endowments like for that college? Are those endowments going to be able to help your child get part of their education financed? Is your child applying for scholarships and grants to make sure that you're not having to pull out so much money or you're not having to apply for so many federal loans in order to help them with their college education. So there is 
a lot to think about. Um, and this would be the time to be thinking about it. Not in January, not in May, um, but I believe at the top of the year, those FAFSA applications come out where parents are trying to apply for possible government funding to see what it is their child is eligible for. Um, and then trying to match that up with whatever university or college that their child has chosen to attend. So it is a lot to think about, but knowing is half the battle. Knowing what you're up against is half the battle. All right. If you would like to respond to today's broadcast, if you'd like to respond to this issue that Black families are definitely facing, please feel free to click on the camera and I will bring you in for discussion. If you are listening by Anchor, Spotify, Google Play, I want to thank you for your time and attention. This has been another episode of Get Free Friday, Finance Friday, and I've been your host, Shante Charles. Thank you for tuning in and listening, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday. Take care, and God bless.